Live from the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, it's the St. Louis Realtor Podcast with your host, Adam Cruz. Welcome, welcome everybody to the St. Louis Realtor Podcast, live from the offices of Adam Cruz here. This is episode 36, the, the jig is up, we don't do it from the rooftop. But um, I'm Adam Cruz, and I wanted to introduce my co-host here, Shannon, Realtor Extraordinaire. And um, what's going on, Shannon? Hello, hello. And uh, so we also have John Charlton here, our guest of the night. We'll get to John in just a second. I wanted to give a couple quick Herman London updates. We had our business planning retreat last week in the cold, um, but it was awesome. We had some really good marketing ideas that the agents shared with each other. Um, a good team collaboration. I think, uh, you know, getting the group together and sharing ideas and sharing experiences and helping each other. There was a couple times where people had to share a problem and people shared their solutions type of thing. Uh, that's kind of why we call Herman London a family, you know. And so that was cool. Um, I'm going to give an update. on. I haven't really talked much about investments in a while. It's probably been like 30 podcasts since I really talked about any of my real estate investment deals. For a while, I was giving an update on them. Um, I've still been buying rental properties, and I bought actually four last week. And we've been buying these properties. I've been buying with a partner, Brian, uh, for an average of around $25,000 purchase price, twenty dollars to $25,000. The rents are $650 or so. And the crazy part is our payment is $1,500. Or, I'm sorry, our payment's $150 a month. So we... Uh, it's it's just kind of crazy how that math works out. Uh, let's see here. I wanted to give an update that we have a CPA coming to our office um, next week. He's going to give us some tax tips. And uh, it's, we're just trying to continue to bring in other experts to the office and help our agents. Um, part of our mission statement is to, to educate our clients and our realtors. So um, we've got the CPA coming in. Uh, last almost last update, Krista, one of our agents, was excited. She got multiple offers on one of her latest rehabs, and it was kind of fun. She went live, too, and she shared her tips and tricks that the agent who wrote the winning offer used to basically get Krista to get her seller to accept that offer. So, What was, were those tips and tricks? Do we want to share them? Yeah, why Let's not? Share them. Okay, so number one was that the agent... Um, I guess there's kind of three things. And so number one, the agent was calling Krista and sort of chatting her up, you know, building a relationship and starting a rapport and making her be someone that Krista would want to work with. Number two, the agent, uh, when they sent the offer, they had the lender. This is a good tip for us, John. They had the lender text message Krista and just introduce himself and basically strengthen and Krista's and her client's mind, the strength and, I guess, the purchase power of the buyer. And um, and then lastly, she, the buying agent, buyer's agent, uh, scheduled their inspection before the offer was even accepted. So I think all of those things, would they make an offer that So that's was, pretty bold, though, because to go out and ex- schedule the inspection prior yeah, to the they offer They can always being, cancel it. Well, I think what yes, they're doing is they were showing... It is. It is that they're on the ball. Yeah, I think they were showing Krista and the sellers that they're on the ball, and Krista could be like, "Well, this buyer is really on top of it." You know, I think this is going to be an easy deal type of thing. 
if someone else offered a lot more, I'm sure they would still go with so was the this in fact offer, the highest offer? I don't know. Okay. I'm wondering also about time frame. Like was it were they letting her know that they were gonna be able to close quickly? Yeah. Actually, like the... um you're right, I forgot to mention that they did like that. Krista liked their I guess their time frame for when they're gonna be able to close. And so which is cool because I know you're all about you guys yeah, can do quick sense. closings now and all that kind of Quicker stuff. Quicker the better. And uh, I guess I could let Shannon talk about herself, but she's been working on a lease purchase deal down in the Cherokee area. Yes, it's on California. So the seller is wanting to sell the house, however, um, is open to the option of lease purchase, which simply means that you would lease the property for a specific amount of time to be determined by the buyer in with the intention of buying the home after that lease is up. So, and it can be anywhere, three months, six months. A year. A year. It's interesting, though, because those deals are really hard to market, right? I mean, we have it listed for lease. We have it listed for sale. But you you can just check a box on the sale thing that says that it's available for lease purchase, but you can't really list it for lease purchase. I think if someone's wanting to do that type of deal, it's hard for them to find them. Yeah, I don't think you can actually search that. Well, a realtor can in uh, special terms, I think it is. is Yeah, in the MLS, but someone on, say, Zillow or Realtor.com can't. So, But if you're interested in the Cherokee area, it's a huge, huge house, though. Mm -hmm. It's five bedrooms, three baths. It's uh, three floors, three levels. So it's a huge home. What's what I was, the asking price for sale? Two fifty. Two fifty, is that a fair price in the area? I mean, is that on the low end, high end? This is probably one of the biggest homes in the area, though, and I think that that's been a hard place um, to price it, just because it's it's big. It's got so much more yeah. square footage than most of the homes around mm. there in that immediate area. And you know, like as we're anywhere in the city, it's all about pockets. So you can't skip over to the next neighborhood and appropriately pull those in as comps either. Right. Yeah. And on a lender's perspective, I mean, I get people all the time that, that are maybe not qualified to buy and they inquire with me, well, how would a lease purchase work? And I mean, I'm always like, well, you're just going to have to talk with a realtor you know, to find a property like that. So there is interest in that type of property. It's interesting that it's hard to locate. You know it is. I mean? Do you get a lot of interest? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, predominantly what you have is you have people that, are, that have a credit issue, typically, mm-hmm. that, like, they have a good job, they're ready to buy, but there's restrictions in terms of when you can buy. Um, so they don't feel like they want to get themselves into a two-year lease if in six months they're going to be past that point. Or even actually, a one-year lease, yeah, if you're talking six exactly. months, then, in that scenario. Right. Which is what most people want their tenants to sign is a minimum one-year lease. Sure. So. Yeah, and I've, okay. I've had some experience, too, like in terms of hearing about people leasing a property with a purchase option, and then the people not ended up doing it, in which case, you know, there's a lot of times earnest money's exchanged, stuff like that. So, I mean, it's... It's an interesting idea as a as a land or as a property owner too to think about well how serious will these people be what do you need in terms of incentives to kind of make them you know get to the point of buying does that make sense Yeah but usually yeah. you're signing the contract when you're signing the lease as well Right so that kind of plays a lot into it but I think what would is the benefit of a lease purchase too oddly is you get to actually quote unquote try out the house 
Right. Just kind of see that it meets your, that maybe meets your needs or that things are as they appear where most buyers don't get that opportunity. Okay. So tonight we have our special guest here, John Charlton with USA Mortgage, sits literally right on the other side of this wall, right? And he's been on the podcast many times. He's given us the mortgage update. He's taught us about a lot of different things, but Shannon's put together this big list of questions. As I always do. Yep, it's, as you always do, and it's good. So what we're hoping is that people will, you know, ask their questions. And uh, I had, I was just eating dinner at the Post, and a guy called me, and he wants to buy a house, and he was kind of like, what do I do, you know? And uh, the first thing I said is you got to call John and um, to get pre-approved, and so you know what you're talking about. You know, you know what kind of you can afford, so... Shannon, do you want to um, talk about your Webster deal, or should we just jump right into... Let's just kind of jump right in, since we spent so much time Let's jump right in. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so first of all, what I'd like is an update. I think there are so many questions on the tax reform. Mm -hmm. What do we know? As far as how that affects mortgages? Yes, us as home buyers and sellers. So I guess one of the things... um, that is kind of strange in the economy is that typically mortgage interest rates go up when the economy is booming. Um, Just what's happening right now in the market is actually a little bit puzzling because interest rates are staying low, even though the Dow Jones and all the other indices are at like all-time highs. Um, So to answer that question, I would say right now it doesn't mean a whole lot because basically interest rates aren't doing much. Um, There is anticipation that they will go up over time and that the Fed will be raising interest rates Um, as far as the Fed funds rate. That should impact the markets and make things a little bit more expensive. But the short answer is I don't see a whole lot of difference right now. Um, I think that basically if you were in a position to buy a home or if you were needing to refinance your home, you know, three, four months ago, that's still the same Basic criteria. So I thought when they um, passed the reform, I saw the interest rates jump. So if like they jump, they jump slightly. From 3.5 to 4.25 almost. Yeah, a lot of the – the one thing that the market's really good at is anticipating where this administration is going. Um, so we don't see big, huge moves on a given day right now. There hasn't been any major events that have happened that have surprised the market. That's where you're going to see real big changes in rates – like overnight or something like that, as if something unanticipated happened. Most of the people knew that the tax reform was going to come through in some variation. Um, so the markets had already kind of priced that. Where the anticipation, though, is is that that doesn't mean there's not immediacy in terms of buying a house right now. I mean, if you're buying a house right now, as Adam could tell you because he just bought a house, and he buys lots of houses, but, <laughs> but you know, interest rates are low. But he bought a house is, for himself. He bought a house for himself. <laughs> and what do you mean? Interest rates are low, and it's a very great market right now for a buyer in terms of how much that money is going to cost you over time. There's still cheap dollars available. Um, it's a good time to buy. So when we talk, a lot of times in the mortgage profession, we say, you know, you need to act on this now. And most people that, that I've said that to, you know, would look at interest rates and maybe they're an eighth higher, you know, than they were a year ago. Is that a huge deal? No, but it's still a great time to buy, you know, because there will be a time when interest rates will go, you know, much higher than they are now. So I can remember even when a 6.5 was considered a good rate. So. Yes. And so can I. And Which I is can, crazy because, yeah, that wasn't even that. 
long ago, like mm-hmm. when I bought my right. first house. So when one the couple of concerns that were in that tax reform bill were uh, to the average buyer and seller, one mm-hmm. was that you would no longer be able to write out the um, interest on your mortgage. Right, that's not happening. Okay, so that so was preserved. That's, that's still a thing. Would that be a federal thing or a state thing anyway? Federal. Yeah. Oh, would? Okay. Because mm-hmm. okay, when and- you deduct your state um, property taxes on your federal income tax return, you know what I'm saying? Okay. So even though that's it's a right. state fee, it's something that the federal government allows you to write off. So in our area, we're not impacted too much by the actual, you know, things that are there that are negative, if you want to say it that way, you know, because we do not really have high property taxes where we are. You know, if you're in a state like New York and you're capped, I think it's 10000 is the maximum amount that you can um, deduct for property taxes. You know, if you're in New York, if you're in Illinois, like in Cook County or something like that, their property tax rates are so much higher that now they're panicking because that's going to mean you know, less money in their pockets when it comes to that, you know, as far as a deduction. So, but in St. Louis, I mean, you really have to be, you know, million dollar plus home pretty much to be up over $10,000 in terms of property taxes. And so, So, and you can still write off the mortgage interest. Yes, you can still write off the mortgage interest. Okay. And so what about the capital gains, which currently is two years, if you sell your house prior to owning it for two years, you will own you'll owe capital capital gains taxes Mm -hmm. in that law. Was it proposed five years? And is that something that's still being upheld? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. I think we've got to ask like our CPA these kind of questions, you know? Yeah. I mean, because that's a big deal and it's a big deal. I think for first time home buyers who maybe go into a home thinking I'll be here for maybe three to five and then come in and go. And then after four, four and a half years go, usually they're going to, usually they're going to buy another house. That's the thing is like capital gains, you know, like when are you going to owe capital gains? I mean, is, are you going to owe capital gains if you, sell your home and buy another home? Likely not. I mean, anybody who has a tax preparer is going to, you know, help them, guide them through that so they're not paying, you know, tax on the on the money that they they made because essentially you're rolling your investment forward. Um, so, you know, I forget the technical term for that, Adam. Probably 1031. 1031. Yeah, I bet exchange. the 1031 guys are chomping at the bits right now. <laughs> right. Right. They're like, yeah, 1031 because, is sort of a foreign term to a lot of people i don't think i've, right. I've never even done a 1031 like kind exchange you know mm-hmm. but i think it sounds like maybe a lot more of them will be happening if they go from two years to it five may years. become Correct. a common thing if that's yes gonna be a thing. we'll have to ask the cpa about that yes. next week when he comes in okay it's interesting that you're you read the tax stuff i guess and you thought about how that would affect the mortgages and well i think that i think i think that that I think more the buyer, like a first-time home buyer who may not quite stay in their they – buy, they buy tiny homes thinking they'll upgrade when they start having families mm-hmm. or something of the sort or circumstances change. And they think that might be five years, but sometimes it's four. Sometimes right. it's three. So it's – Maybe they'll hold it as a rental or do a 1031, Right. I guess. So mm-hmm. I think it does kind of play into some – a lot of scenarios, but – I mean, the bottom line. Interesting to talk to him about this. I mean, what I what I always tell people about home buying though is that it's home buying. Like the most base thing about it is it's a place to live. Okay, so that's first and foremost, right? Second most base thing about it is is that it's wealth building. It's not, you know, 
that person that buys a house and yeah, you might have some tax penalty, you know, taxes that you have to pay on that. You've still gained wealth by buying a property versus renting a property for the next four or five years, you know? So I guess as just in a base ideology, I'd say that that's, that's the key there, you know? So yes, I mean, obviously watching the news, different things that are going on all will affect things slightly, but the base cause of buying real estate is to do what? To have a place to live, to invest in your future, to wealth build. Those root causes never change and no tax policy is ever going to take away that advantage to be a no home buyer. You know what I mean? Well, that's so. very good. That's kind of like a rah-rah. Rah-rah. Buy a house. Thing, right? Yeah, for sure. This is so interesting to me being on the Facebook Live while we're doing this because normally when we record our podcast, I know that maybe someone will listen, but now I'm literally like... I get the little notification of who's listening, so I'm getting used to this whole Facebook Live thing still. Um, next, you wanted to ask him about just kind of a general, like, quickly, what are the max concessions for buyers for the different types of loans? And when we say that, Shannon, you want to say what you mean by that? Closing cost credits, right? Yeah, closing costs that the seller pays that the buyer requests within their contracts. And let me put right. that, let me frame that for a second because we've always people have always asked like buyers have very often asked sellers to pay their closing costs for them and so this is nothing new really right or pay part of their closing costs or whatever but with the recent changes to the realtor contract now they added the line on there where it's actually part of the contract where you're going to check a box and say i want the seller to pay x dollar amount or x percentage of the sales price towards my closing costs prepaids and buy downs and so this whole closing cost thing is just going to continue to be a big part of our deals and it's going to be more and more important that we know specifically what the max allowable part is, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's always been part of the conversation, but now it will be in, it's in writing in the contract, right. new as of 2018. So, I think so it's- yeah, and, and this is something that I find, this is fascinating to me, and it has more to do with your industry than mine. But, you know, the truth is, is in St. Louis, there's almost never a time where I see a contract that doesn't have some sort of concession from the seller. Um, you know, that's taking advantage of a market. So we think about what's happening there. Basically the person that's selling the home is selling the per- it to somebody for less than what it will praise for. I mean, that's the way to think about it. They are, you know, let's say it's a $200,000 deal. They're going to give you 3% concessions. Really they're giving you $6,000. They're really selling it to you for 194,000, right. even though it will praise for 200. That's fascinating to me just at the onset. I guess I never really thought about it like that. Even though it has to still appraise for 200 Right. It, it still to has to appraise, so it has to have comparables. And, I mean, when you're thinking about it, what's six grand really in value? I mean, an appraiser is going to go out. Is this 194000 or 200000 Normally, there's not going to be that big of a difference. But what I find interesting, this is why I'm bringing it up, is that in other markets, it's not like that. People may ask for seller concessions, and the seller may say, no way. You know what I mean? Like we're getting top dollar for this thing. Great example of that is I do deals in Colorado. In Denver, there is no concessions. And in fact, most sales are for more than what the asking price is and, you know, more than what the house will appraise for. So what does that do? That makes a major appreciating market. But the bottom line is that is a seller's market. You know what I mean? Yeah. Buyer's market here, taking advantage of concessions, I think it's awesome because – Usually what it means is that you're getting more house than probably what you could afford if you weren't. I mean, as far as like your down payment. Um, 
you know, you asked what the maxes were. So, I mean, that's a good place to start. On government loans, FHA, USDA, it's 6%. On conventional loans, it's a little bit more varied. Um, there's tiers, you know, depending on how much your down payment is. So if you put less than 10% down, you can only get a 3% concession. Um, you know, if it's between 10 and 20, you can get a 6% concession. So that kind of is, and VA, which is important to talk about too, is 4% is the maximum concession on that from the seller. So I see them all the time. I think it's a great question because it is an advantage to buying a home too. Like when you think about it, if you're buying that house for 200000 getting a 6% concession, you really got it for 194 And hey, you already have six grand in the home. You know what I mean? Let so, me ask you quickly about the VA loan thing because sure. uh, so on the VA rider, okay. it says something like the seller will pay buyer's closing costs required by lender or so, it has some sort of wording like that. I didn't prepare sure. for this question, but is that insinuating that on all VA deals, sellers have to pay all the buyer's closing costs? No. Because buyers, a VA buyer just is not allowed to bring any money to the table or something, or what's the deal? So the reality of the VA loan program is, is it's meant to be 100% financing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's the bottom line. So is it 100% financing if there's $4,000 worth of closing costs? That's kind of debatable. You know what I mean? But yeah, the, because the, they don't have to bring a down payment, right? But the seller can get gift that you know can basically do a concession for that four thousand dollars, so that the person gets the hundred percent financing. Um, banks don't charge like bank fees on VA loans; um, they're limited to how much they the, it can actually cost. Um, you know that doesn't mean that banks try to charge people tons of money on other deals, but but the reality is that VA is meant to be a hundred percent financing, and you know. God bless people that serve the military. You know, it's awesome that we have that program for them. So, so. if they're buying a hundred thousand dollar house, is their is their loan like on day one, a hundred and three thousand? It depends on the type of uh, entitlement that they have. So, I mean, without getting boring people with this, I mean, you know, if you if you receive VA disability, then you're exempt from what's called the funding fee for VA. Mm-hmm. So, truly, it's a hundred percent financing. You're not adding a a fee for the VA. Okay. Um, if it's, you know, a normal person, you know, that's discharged from the military, then yes, they would have some sort of a fee, um, that's added to the loan, but not something they pay out of pocket. So, you know, VA on refinances too is a hundred percent financing. I mean, it's a pretty sweet program. It's great for people. I mean, anybody who has a military background, that's the loan you should be looking into. And, you know, that's, there's no doubt about that. So. You gave me a formula one time, and I think it was kind of a rough formula, but it was sort of like what closing costs percentage will be. Like on a $100,000 deal, it's probably around 3%. 150 it's probably 3% plus 1000 or something. But it's not always 3%, right? If you're buying a $500,000 house, your closing costs are not no. 3%. No. That, what, what's correct. your sort of your formula for that? So I, I like to think about where most people are. So I think 3% is a great number to use unless you're buying a house over 250000 you know. And then after that, your closing costs are going to be li- slightly less than 3%. And, and if you're under 100000 they might be slightly more too. But that's just a good benchmark for people. The calculus is it depends on every county, depends on every, you know, what kind of insurance you get, whatever the other costs are. But if you go in anticipating that closing costs are going to be about 3%, you're right, unless you're buying a house for more than 
250000 And when you say closing costs, do you mean closing costs including inspections, appraisal, survey? So I don't... I don't include inspections in that. I do include appraisal. You know, mm-hmm. inspections are, you know, I've seen inspections where somebody got them done for $300 and one that somebody spent $1,500. Right. So the inspections could be run in the gamut. And that's really your option. Um, I don't require any inspections as a bank um, other than, you know, like in certain instances, I would need a termite inspection. If it's a VA loan, that's mm-hmm. the example. And the seller has to pay for that. Correct. That is true. So those, so, I mean, that's really the only time that I require anything um, here, unless you're in a rural area, you need well and septic inspection, stuff like that. So, so, cool. you no, know, that's not included, but it can be, I can work that into the, the loan. If you need to stay under 3% and you need all that, then it can be done. You know what I mean? So. Well, with that change to the contract now, I used to like to argue what closing costs the term meant. Right. But they added now it's closing costs, comma, prepaids, comma, buy down. So Correct. I don't have to argue that anymore. And that actually, I think that's a better way to do it in a way because um, in my mind, that is up for interpretation. Is the closing cost just the title fees? I mean, is the, I've heard people say that. I loved that. I loved arguing that because <laughs> there was a separate paragraph called closing costs, and it listed out what all of them was, and it included inspections and appraisal and all that stuff. But some lenders, I don't know about you guys, but right. some lenders wanted you to say prepaids and buy-downs. But yeah, it's in there automatically now, so. Well, and I mean, I've actually had instances where a seller was like, you know, I don't want to pay for their insurance for a year. Why would I pay for that? Right, right, right. You know, but you agreed to give them 3%. What are we talking about here? You right. know, it's kind of my take on that. So Yeah, that's what's, that's what's interesting about them adding that to the contract is that now will we be asking for closing costs more often? Maybe. I don't know. But your sellers that used to say, I'm not paying their closing cost kind of attitude. They are, I think, probably a little bit more likely to accept that as a normality since it's already like pre-printed into the contract instead of us having to handwrite it or type it in there as sort of like an extra thing. Right. Yeah, and I think it'll be, I mean, I think it's good just because it's full disclosure up front, right? So people can make a decision maybe quicker. Um, and, and, and also I think it'll be easier to compare, you know, offers, yeah, um, with that. So, okay, so let's talk about getting a mortgage. Credits. Yep. What's credit is part of it for sure. Credit. Yeah, credit, <laughs> the job thing, money. Right? So, what do people need to know? And I think more like on credit. Okay. I think yeah. it's been such a tricky, tricky. Well, you want them to start with what's your minimum credit score you have to have? Your minimum credit middle score you have to have, or what do you want them to talk yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, what are the thresholds? So your minimum, where's next a threshold where you would get a better interest rate? Where's the next, th- the, the ultimate threshold? Right. Okay, well, we could do a whole podcast yeah, on credit. Yeah, so just in a nutshell, but, the, those thresholds. Yeah, so key components. I think, actually, it's kind of a shame that everybody doesn't learn about credit if it's going to be this important and people are going to, you know, essentially have the option to buy a house or not buy a house based on it that maybe well we and not just more. that everything else is affected by your credit sure your insurance rates your yeah. every move you make and like i think you think they should teach you about a cell it in school I, absolutely i think yeah. like that would be better than probably a civics class although maybe we need more civics classes too sorry but anyway um <laughs> but no i think like uh i think the most important thing to know about credit is is that a bank is is trying to get to know you with 
a very quick operating system and it's not perfect. Um, so, you know, it used to be you went to your local bank, they knew you, you were a farmer, Jeb or something, I don't know. Um, Jeb? And, wow. but, but, you know, whatever you were and, and the bank knew you, but now you're going to somebody who has to get a picture of you without, you know, just right away to know whether or not to make a lending decision to you. Um, so like a lot of times when people are skeptical about credit, I'm like, well, you're asking for a $200,000 loan. I mean, if you were going to borrow 200000 if I was going to buy it, borrow it from you, would you want to know something about me? Yeah, a so, little bit. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, but the most important things I think to know are that, you know, ultimately credit can be, you know, fixed. Like a lot of times people feel like they're trapped with a bad credit score. That's not the case. But it I've, can be fixed pretty fast. It can sometimes. be fixed fast. I mean, like, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who couldn't repair their credit within, you know, a year um, to a reasonable rate. There are some rate scenarios that might take a little longer. Yep, and sometimes you can do it yourself. Sometimes you're going to need help. But the first thing is, is that it's like it's like knowing that there there is the possibility if you have damaged credit, you can get it fixed. There's no. But I think the it. thing I've learned over the uh, years is that it's it's best to talk to a lender. Because what you think you need to do is not necessarily what you need to do right. to raise your score the most. So a lot. Of, this is a common misconception: is that if you have a cable bill from ten years ago that's on your credit report, you got to pay it, right? And it'll raise your credit. And score. it'll raise your credit. No, that's not true. Um, credit really. So like the components are basically active accounts is important. Your history is obviously important. The amount of inquiries, the amount of people you're trying to get, you know, a loan from, that matters. Um, so what I always try to start with with people is just find out how much they already know because there's lots of information. You can get online. You can read all about you know the bureaus and this and that. But when I talk with somebody, I try to find out what they already know about themselves in terms of what they you know have historically or whatever. And also try to educate them that really the best thing for you to do is to create positive things going forward. You know, a lot of times living in the past is – you know, just that. And you can leave stuff in the past in certain instances. You have to address things. But I think damage credit people need to know that they can fix it, that it's not, you know, a voodoo, you know, that it's very it's an algorithm and, and essentially anybody can can, you know, get their credit to a point of buying a house in pretty quick. So brass order. tax, what's that minimum credit score? Brass tax. Um well there's not really a minimum credit score because there's instances where you know, you could have a situation. So USA, I don't, you know, I want to talk more broadly, but, it, but I mean, we have instances where people don't have a credit score. Can you get a loan if you don't have a credit score? Yes. That's something that, you know, and comes just on up. the side note there, no credit is just as bad, uh, just as bad as bad credit. Well, some, no, I mean, if you're a, if you're a young ass, person but... and you've never taken out a loan, then there are no credit options out there. Does that mean that, that, you know, tomorrow if you call me and you have a 450 credit score that I'm going to be able to do a loan for you? No, um, in all likelihood. But, but there are options. So the first thing is you got to find out where you're at, you know what I mean, and then go from there. You can't give me a number? I think I could – anybody who wanted Ideally, to – Ideally, you want a minimum of? So let's talk about where you're going to get really great pricing and great everything. Well, I mean, so the ideal buyer is for us for is somebody who has – Paid their bills on time. That has low um, debt to income ratio. So meaning what you owe out there versus what you earn 
is low. Those are people that are going to be higher than, like, say, a 750 credit score. That's considered A-plus credit. You're probably going to get the best possible financing in that instance. Um, but can I do a loan for somebody with a 620? Yes. Can I do a loan for somebody with a 580? Yes. What are the trade-offs there? Probably you're going to have less options in terms of okay. down payment and – and so 580. Interest rate. 580 is all I would all say. All that for 580. Ah, sorry. <laughs> okay, but. Shannon, keep going down your list here. Okay, so I think one of the questions that we get all the time, um, especially from first-time home buyers, or even um, is what can I afford? I'm not really ready to even talk to a lender because that's always going to be my total response because that, I think, gives the best scenario and picture for someone to tell them what they could afford. But what if they're just not ready? They just want to start looking. How do they figure out what they could possibly afford? Which so, is frustrating, by the way. If they say, oh, I'm not ready to talk to a lender, it's like that should actually be your first move. Because what if you called John and you find out you had credit fraud or right? Right? Things you didn't anything know like existed that? And in, so yes. all this time that you're avoiding talking to a lender yes. while you're looking at houses, you could be fixing your credit during that time. Right? Or, yeah. Sorry. To get on my no, I do. I do. But, which totally is why we that. really do say talk to a lender because there are things that'll pop up that you don't know exist. But what I, I'm kind of going for is say someone makes fifty thousand dollars, and let's do the debt, the actual. Um, so I might think about that. I probably think about that a lot differently than probably. I mean, you probably get a different answer from you know any different mortgage banker you talk to about that. But I, the question I always ask people is, what are you paying now? Like, what is your rent now? You know, like, is the house that you have, you know, fulfilling the, the needs that you have now? Is it, like, two-bedroom, one-bath? That's what you need to buy, you know? Um, so I like to give people an idea of, okay, if you weren't renting and you were buying, this is a, roughly the dollar amount that you could afford. Like what your current um, rent would be if it was yeah. a mortgage? So if, if somebody says that I spend $1,000 a month in rent... I'm like, well, you recognize you can buy like a hundred and sixty, hundred seventy thousand dollar house and have that same payment. Okay. I think that that's a good way to think about things initially, but obviously there's life changes that happen that necessitate buying something that's more than that. I mean, you know, you're getting married, you guys are going to have kids, whatever the situation might be, where you might be going from spending a thousand dollar a month and now you're going to be spending two thousand dollars a month. You know, because this you want to live in this school district or whatever the instances might be. So, I think affordability is. I would always start with what you're paying now um, to try to address that. But then, yes, we have ratios like in terms of what percentage of your income, you know, should be allocated to a home loan, um, and and those are safe harbor um, restrictions in lending. You know, so we don't want to we don't ever want to be in a position again where we put people in homes they can't afford and the laws are written that way and anybody who's in my business now i mean that's a a1 priority and if it's not they won't be in the business much longer anyway so you know so can i ask you um one of the two things i guess every time i work with a buyer i like to tell them first of all i just want you to know that i'm never going to need to know anything about your money and you should talk to your lender about that because a lot of times I work with friends and family, and I think it's good for them to know that I don't need to know how much money they make or have or anything like that, right? Yeah, but mm-hmm. this time we don't, we don't have a clue. And I don't want to know. You know, I don't want to tell anybody about my money stuff, So I, especially if I'm working with a friend. I don't want them to have to be like, 
yeah, Adam, here's my salary and, you know, whatever. So none of my business. But I like to tell people, call your lender and tell them the monthly payment that you're comfortable with and figure out what mortgage amount that is. Right. Right? Because just because someone can get a loan for a million dollars doesn't necessarily mean they want to. Right. And so I think they like to know kind of what their max is. Mm-hmm. But I think I would I like to suggest to people that they come up with a monthly payment that they're happy with, and then you can help them figure out what sort of purchase price that is. Right? Yeah, so on my side, you know, because people do let me know, you know, all that stuff. I mean, I'm in the same position. I When when I tell people, hey, you know, if you want your payment to be, you know, $1,000 a month, you need to be looking at $160,000, $170,000. Mm-hmm. But I also always let them know. But just so you know, you know, I could actually approve you to 290000 problem I found with that is is that almost always what ends up happening is the people look at the houses now that are two hundred and ninety thousand mm-hmm. so i don't I don't like want to really like throw that out as you know, but I do think it's important to know what your threshold is, and you know obviously grown people make grown people decisions, so I mean whatever people decide it's not my job to. And what we're sort of not saying is that the difference between what you're willing to give them a mortgage for or you're capable of, I guess, based on all these ratios and stuff like that may not include some of their actual expenses, right? Yeah, because, I mean, uh, so just talking percentages, safe harbor in the U.S. is 43% of your income could be go towards a mortgage. Um, But, I mean, you know, depending on what your other costs are, I mean, that might be way too high. It mm-hmm. might be really low. And then also, obviously, you know, 43% of somebody who makes 600000 is got a lot more available money than somebody who makes, you know, 35000 So um, Can I ask, so when you say 43%, as an example with credit cards, is that based on a minimum credit card payment or is that based on like minimum, what they generally yeah. pay on no, their credit card? No, it's based on minimum Payment. Payments on everything. So if they spend like wild mm-hmm. and they pay it off every month, they pay $3,000 a month or whatever towards their credit card, right. you're not considering that $3,000. You're considering that $150 minimum, minimum payment, payment. towards right. their debt. Exactly. And that's kind of where the difference is, I guess. Mm-hmm. They don't think about that when they go and buy the $290,000 house. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, like like I said, if it, it is interesting, you know, because I've been through that many times where I pre-approve somebody – Mentioned to them, oh, yeah, you could look up to this amount, and then they end up doing that. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's something awesome, being optimistic about what the future is going to hold, too, you know. But yeah. but I but I do think that, you know, in general, going back to the original question, I try to give people options that fit what they want to do, you know, and where they want to be. That's also. one of the reasons why we like you is because I think our company culture is to help people make smart decisions in right. real estate and – not necessarily – we're not just trying to get the biggest commission we can by selling the biggest house we can. Right. And then having them be – you know, having financial problems. So I, I think you kind of come from the same – Yeah, totally. I mean – Cloth or whatever. I don't – I'm not a financial advisor, but I do try to learn a person's life and their situation and give them good advice. And I, and I think if you're a realtor, if you're anybody in financial services, if that's not your your main operating procedure, then – then you're not doing any service to to your your people. So, any questions from our audience? Just submit a little question, type it up. I'm watching here. So let's try to do ten minutes left. Shannon, get your best questions going. Well, what do you want to know? Um, 
<laughs> Put me on the spot. So uh, let's talk a little bit about sellers then, too, because there are a lot of options for sellers, like the bridge loan that yeah. I don't think people realize exists necessarily because I think sellers are very confused. They want to upgrade, but they need that money from their house. And how do you close on the house and then turn around and buy another house? And yeah. does it all have to happen on the same day? And and then it just becomes overwhelming. And I've only heard of bridge loans by watching The Sopranos because it just wasn't something that oh, was really? either popular or available <laughs> in a really long time. Right. And so, but you mentioned them the other day that you can do bridge loans. Correct. Can you give what is that and like kind of give us the gist? Um. So uh, yeah, I think that the a person's first move. Being a home buyer, selling, buying another house—that's like probably one of the hardest transitions. Um, and it, not that it's that much easier if you've done it three or four times, but navigating that in right now is pretty difficult. So a bridge loan—what it—what it is—is what it is, is it's essentially a loan against the house you live in now to help you buy the house that you want to buy. You know, a it's, short term. It's, a, it's a, usually a one-year um, loan. It's a second-position loan. Um, so, you know, basically, but it's on the current house. So Correct. how does that, so it's kind of like a home equity the, loan. Yeah. yeah but, exactly. then, but you wouldn't get a home equity loan after you've already decided to sell. Correct. So like if you have that house, so a bridge loan is, so most of the time when you're trying to pull cash out of your property, banks have restrictions that the house can't be on the market or couldn't have been on the market in the last, you know, six months or three months or whatever. Um, a bridge loan is designed for somebody who's looking to sell their home, has the house on the market, needs money for a down payment to buy their next house. Um, so they take a loan against their current house to, to buy that next house. Um, so, you know, so this it's is using a, the equity in the house that correct. they currently have. So with that said, they have to have enough equity for this. Correct. Yes. Yeah. It's not going to go over the value of the home. And in fact, it's pretty restrictive. Um, back but, you know, before the crash, you know, bridge loans went to 100% of the value. You will not ever see that product again. Um, that's just not going to exist. Um, Are they you know, really just supposed to be using it for their down payment on their new? Yeah, and I mean, I would tell you specifically bridge loans are not necessarily for people that are buying their second home. Normally, bridge loans are for people that have a significant amount of their savings in their home. So like a retired person maybe who doesn't even have a mortgage than what's buy another house and they don't have you know, their own fixed income or whatever, those are going to be a perfect candidate for a bridge loan because basically they've got a ton of equity. They need money to go buy their next place. So you know, in retirement areas, you know, people in that mode, you'll see a lot more of this type of lending, and it's a valuable thing. Um, for That's people. why my dad's always asking about it. He's always he's asking about it. He's a realtor in that um, like above 55 kind Correct. of retirement type. Yes. And, and those people can utilize that program and it'll be very helpful to them. So I'm glad that they're back in a certain sense, but I mean, ultimately you still have to sell the house, um, you know, because you want to, you have to pay off the bridge loan. You got to pay off your original bank if you had another loan. So, um, but yeah, going back to the whole navigating though, that, that second home purchase, because I have, you know, my age category, maybe I'm, I've got tons of people that are in that, I actually tell pretty much everybody who wants to look into buying their second house that really they need to talk with their realtor. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you might be interested that, that there's a time where I'm saying, you know, like you're saying, hey, go talk to the bank yeah. and find out. Well, when somebody's wanting to go buy their second home, I usually say, you need to talk with a realtor, get an idea of what your house is going to sell for, get an idea of what you, you may be clearing, you know, after your, all the fees and everything. 
you know, and that's kind of your starting point. Um, you know, so that's a way in which, you know, we have a copacetic relationship, you know, with, with copacetic. that. Copacetic. Yeah, we appreciate that. That's right. So speaking of, especially those that are down the line, do you do a lot of reverse mortgages? Do you like I, them? I've do never you... gotten into it. Um, I'd be glad to refer it out to somebody. But no, I'm, I'm not really – I mean, I think a reverse mortgage is great for somebody who doesn't plan on having a asset to hand down. Um, so, you know, if that's the circumstances, you know, that, that that's, that's maybe a good program. But – but I don't. I don't really aspire to tell people, "Hey, do a reverse mortgage," unless you really just need to have no payment on on your house. If you get a reverse mortgage and you owe more on the property than what it's worth, and you pass away, do your children nope. have to pay the difference? That nope. difference is just gone. Nope, it's wiped. Yeah. Okay. Hey, so. let's make sure. By the way, let's get your info. Do you have to give you like your NMLS number or anything like that? Um, I don't know. Is this officially sanctioned event? I'm not sure. So just give it. Just to be safe and give your contact info. So my NMLS number is one eight eight nine one zero. So my name is John Charlton. I work for USA Mortgage. My cell phone number? No. I'm, uh, yeah. You really want me to give a cell phone? Yeah, I'm call yourself. My cell phone number is three one four five one seven zero two six two. Um. So yeah, call me. Oh hey. <laughs> okay. Um. I. One more question, and then we'll do our five questions for everybody, and then we'll wrap it up for the night. What do you think? Okay. What's your final question? Oh, me. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so is it still – I don't know if this, if this is like my epic final question, but I'm curious about refinancing. Is this still a refi market? Yes. It is? Yeah, certainly. Because people still have sixes, or are you refinancing a 4.8 to a 4.5 or something? So, you know – the bottom line is interest rates are still good. So Yeah, but who's refining that hasn't already refied in the last few years? Yeah, so that's or bought. So refinances are way down in terms of volume because there isn't as many people that have six percent interest rates out there anymore. Mm-hmm. But where where it's still a good option for people is, you know, it's way better to have mortgage debt than any other kind of debt. Um in my mind, I think in most financial planners' minds, um, because of the tax deductibility of it, you know. So you're saying people who are trying to roll in their debt. Yeah. So cash out. Most of the refinances I've done in the last three months have been cash out refinances. Um, And I do, I have a friend that just did a refi because they pulled out a lot of equity from the house to completely redo a kitchen. Sure. And that was, that's a great reason. Yep. Um, reason, people refi but if they want to but get the rid of interest rate was higher. Yeah, getting rid of the PMI is still a big thing. I mean, if you have an FHA loan that was that might be around five years old, um, you're still paying a pretty high MI rate on those loans. So, you know, could you get a better interest rate um, with a, you know, eliminating the mortgage insurance? Yes. So, so they I mean, call us. We tell them what their home is worth. They figure out if they have twenty percent equity, and if so, then you can refinance them. There's actually buyouts of MI even if you only have you know five percent equity. You can buy out of it like in a single premium. There's basically which would make sense to do if you plan on living there home forever. For yeah, many many more years. Exactly. Okay. And then the other thing is, oh, you like, mean when they go to get the mortgage? Right. Okay. Yeah. The buyout. Or now he's saying you can buy you it can, out now. You can buy it out after you've owned the home. Quit playing know. 150 dollars a month. You can pay sure. three thousand dollars or whatever. Now I'm totally making these numbers Those, up. That could be very close, and it might and it might be that you're giving up some equity in the home. In other words, you're 
you're raising the amount that you owe, but you know you're recasting the loan, eliminating the mortgage insurance. There's benefits to refinancing for for people. And then the other thing too is just like a lot of times people are in the wrong mortgage. And what I mean by that is they may have a 30-year fixed mortgage that's you know got a good interest rate. They're at four and a quarter. But, you know, they're going to retire in 10 years. Should they really have a 30-year mortgage? Um, you know, I mean, like, so recasting a loan on a shorter term is always a good option if you can lower the rate. Or just having a conversation and finding out what's the best thing for you. I mean, everybody's circumstances are different, you know. And, and so, I mean, I always say, you know, if you're curious about it, then have a conversation, you know. And it doesn't mean that, you know, that you are going to refinance for sure. And in fact, I love having conversations where I can tell people, especially previous customers, Hey, you're in great shape. You're awesome. Stay right where you do what you're doing. And, and, you know, and that's, that's beneficial too. to know. I'm excited to say we have a question from a listener. Oh, cool. And the question is, uh, what's generally the rate difference between a jumbo loan and a 30 year fixed rate mortgage? If there is a rule of thumb and, so that's her question. But while you're answering that, didn't the jumbos numbers just go up or something like that? Yeah. So truth is, is that they're pegged to pretty much the same indices. So they rates should be pretty comparable. Um, last year, there was periods of time where jumbo loans were cheaper than, than 30-year fixed conventional mortgages. Um, so, I mean... Jumbo is what size? Above... So that changed recently. So I think it's above 424,000 and some mm-hmm. change in our area. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, jumbo loans, I mean, I guess the point there or the question there is kind of, should you pay more down? So you're in a conforming loan than stay in a jumbo. Well, I mean, that's going to depend what the rates are and whether or not that where you're pulling that money from and whether it makes sense to put a larger down payment down. And I hope I'm not misreading that question, but that's how I would interpret it is that, you know, you have the option of either putting more down to put it into a conventional loan or have a jumbo. And I would say that just depends on what rates the banks are offering. And you used so, a word there, conforming. So I guess the whole concept of having jumbo loans is that they're just different types of loans. Jumbos are just higher dollar amounts. Right. So, but so why is that non-conforming? Um, so what's meant by conforming is that it could be purchased by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Mm-hmm. A jumbo loan is going to be serviced by the bank that holds it, and they're going to hold the debt on it. So those aren't saleable loans. They don't sell jumbo loans on the secondary market. And that's why banks, you know, occasionally rates will be different on those. They may be higher now. I haven't priced one recently, so I couldn't tell you necessarily where they're at today. I'm guessing but, they're usually higher because everyone was so excited when the jumbo amount went up. Mm-hmm. Right, the dollar amount of a jumbo loan was like redefined. Yeah, and they're like, oh my god, jumbos are up. Well, that's why I was saying last year was kind of an anomaly that jumbo rates were lower. You know, oh, they were lower. Time. Yeah, okay. for a period so, of time. So yeah, in general, it's a higher risk mortgage for a bank. You know, in certain instances, so they tend to have higher rates. Okay, one more question from the audience. Right on. Quick question: Why do the refinancing terms vary depending on who you use? Like the refinancing, the the terms, I guess. I think she means like if you call John Charlton or if you call some other bank or if you call your brother who's a lender in Idaho or whatever, like I think she means like when you talk to different lenders, why are the terms different? Mm. And probably also she means the rules since this is my wife and 
Yeah, I was like, reading into it a little bit, but I think she also <laughs> means like the rules when someone would say yes or someone would say no or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, so there's lots of different types of banks and there's lots of different people that do mortgages. Um, there's lots of different types of companies and types of experiences you can have. So, I mean, I think it's good to shop mortgage companies, but really I think, you know, mainly what you're looking for is, is a person that's going to take good care of you, do a good job, give you good advice and ultimately tell you if they don't have the best deal for you too. You know, and that's that's something that I think is important. So why would the terms be different, one mortgage company to another? Because we work for different companies, you know, with different, you know, different, I don't know, practices. Pricing. Sure, pricing can vary. Um, you know, I think, like, what's what's interesting to me is, like, what is considered a difference might be, you know, interest rate is one everybody knows, but costs can be different. You know, like mm-hmm. how much a bank charges can be different. Um, you know, other types of terms might be different, you know, too, outside of that. Um, you know, so I think the best advice I could give anybody is just to talk with people you trust. Um, and if you don't have somebody, find somebody you trust. And then also, you know, I think it's important even in that circumstance to check with somebody else, get a second set of eyes and ears on something and, and but but have somebody you could go to that could explain to you the differences too, because I mean, I've I've been in this business where two people had a six and a half percent mortgage, but an APR on one was seven percent and the other one was nine point five. Like people don't recognize that 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 there is can be differences other than just interest rate is my point. Anyway, hope that answered it, Molly. <laughs> well, I guess basically what you're saying is like. They can because people can charge whatever they want to. Sure, right? It's a and business, so right? If you buy lemonade from one street corner to another, it might be a dime here and a quarter there, and like because they can't. Right. They, one has more traffic or whatever they. And there are companies out there that believe that the cheapest is the best way to go a hundred percent of the time, and there's you know there's consumers that believe that the cheapest is the best way to go a hundred percent of the time. Um, I'm not one of those people that believes that. I think that there's you know. There's something to be said for having competition and different models. That's a good thing. All right, let's jump into our – let's wrap up the meat of the segment here. Okay. If that's okay, Shannon. Go ahead. We're going to jump into the five questions that I like to ask each of our guests. Okay, so, John, who lives under your roof? Uh, Under my roof? Um, Myself, my wife, Elizabeth, my daughter, Joelle, my dog, Sienna. Um, that's it. Okay. And, uh, I got that question from Trey. I, I think he framed it that way. I don't know. Right on. Uh, where are you your best? Where am I my best? Mm-hmm. That's a strange question. Where am I my best? Uh, with a beer in my hand on a beach. That's, that's where you're your best. hundred percent. John, the best of John Charlton. hundred percent. <laughs> okay. Do you have a favorite blog or podcast? Are you like a book reader or a blog reader? Um, hmm. So I read a lot of books. Blogs, I'm not a huge blog reader. I, I read a lot of news. I don't know. Where do you get your news? Um, I get my news from everywhere oh. except for Facebook. <laughs> okay. I'm like, I just sort of asked him a political question. I didn't mean uh, to. Right. What's your guilty pleasure? Oh, man. These are brutal. Um <laughs> 
I would say uh, steak sandwiches from the post on Fridays. Okay. And who is your mentor and how have you thanked them? Boy, that's a good question too. Um, I have a lot of mentors, like business mentor. Is that what, kind of what you're thinking or personal mentor? However or? you want it. Hmm. Well, I'd say my brothers are my mentors. Um, you know, I grew up with my mom and my three older brothers, um, and all of them kind of, you know, had a different vision and, and had a different, you know, kind of personality. And so they were kind of my, my three dads, so to speak, in a way. How have you thanked so, them? Um, by love and gratitude, bro. You know what I mean? Good, good. All right. Well, this wraps up our segment. Thank you, John Charlton. Thank you, Shannon St. Pierre, of course, for being here. And we got to thank Joey Vosovich, our producer of the best podcast. Hey, Joey. And now Facebook Live producer in the world. <laughs> so thanks, everyone, for watching, and take care. Bye.